Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you do when you get junk mail in the mail? Before you answer that, I should probably clarify exactly what I mean when I'm talking about junk mail because I'm not just talking about the coupons that you get in your mailbox from Meineke or the offer for credit cards. I'm talking about those things, but I'm also talking about the junk mail that you get in your email. You know, the offers from uh, that shoe company that you haven't bought shoes in for like more than two years now. Or, or all these stars from Starbucks for drinks that I don't even know how to pronounce. What do you do with those kind of emails? Or the sponsored ads that are, that are on the internet or on every social media that you look at. <clears throat> the sponsored ads for an entire couch from a furniture store, even though I went on just one time to look for like one shelf. Sponsored ads that happen to like know, like Target, that I have a 10-month-old in my house, even though I have never bought any clothes or anything from Target from my phone or my computer, but my wife has, so now it's even creepier that it's on my computer. What do you do with that junk mail? Do you like file it away in a special like folder in your email? Do you like stack it neatly on the kitchen counter so that Saturday morning you can sit down and you'll finally have time to read all of your junk mail? No? No, of course not. Nobody does that. Nobody reads their junk mail. That's why we call it junk mail because everybody looks at, at it long enough to realize what it is and then they click trash. They swipe left or they throw it right away. I mean, that's what you do with junk mail, right? Does anybody do anything different than that? No. Yesterday, a group of volunteers from this church and some of our brothers and sisters from our, our, our sister congregations in the area got together and we handed out 3,500 invitations to our Good Friday and Easter services. This week, an advertisement went up on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and already thousands of people have seen the, the ad, inviting people to come to worship. Signs throughout Fredericksburg have been posted for a week now, and perhaps thousands of people know that we are having a Good Friday and Easter service. And yet I wonder, I wonder how many people took the door hanger and just threw it in the trash. I wonder how many people looked at the ad on Facebook, saw that we're having a Good Friday, a live tomb, and an Easter service, and didn't even look at it long enough to read it. But I mean, can you really blame them? I mean, those are just pieces of paper, right? The door hangers. And the ads online, was ones of like millions of different ads online. So who, who can really blame them, right? But what if that message was personally delivered. I mean, like, personally, you, sitting across the kitchen table from one of the people in our community, people who live in and around Fredericksburg, you sat across the kitchen table from them, and you invited them to come to Easter. You invited them to come to our live tomb event. You invited them to hear all about what Jesus' death and his resurrection means for your life. What do you think then? You think you would be treated just like a door hanger? You think you'd be treated just like a piece of junk mail thrown in the trash, put it, picked up, thrown over the shoulder, thrown outside? You know, God forbid, right? 
Today in our gospel lesson, Jesus is telling yet another parable to the people that are following him. It's a parable, an earthly story that has an eternal point. And in Jesus' parable this morning, spoiler alert, he tells us about some people who were sent a message and some people who hit trash, who threw it right in the junk pile. Our gospel this lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 20, verse 9. I want to invite you all to open up to it. A little context first. Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. We're jumping ahead a little bit. Next week, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. We're going to celebrate Jesus' entrance into the holy city of Jerusalem. But our lesson for today jumps ahead to a time during the week when Jesus sits down in the temple and he begins to teach. If you can imagine, the uh, pastors at the temple didn't like that very much. If another pastor came in here today, I probably wouldn't like plot to kill him if he started to preach instead of me, but I'd be mad. And I'd let Jesus preach if he came here today. But when Jesus came to preach at the temple, it really, really pushed some buttons. And they plotted to kill Jesus. They started to scheme a way that they could get rid of Jesus. And so Jesus told them this parable. The parable called them out for what they were planning on doing. The parable noted that Jesus, I know what you are trying to do. And this parable was a plea. It was a plea for them to reconsider, to them think twice about what they're thinking about doing. But the powerful plea that Jesus issues with this parable isn't just for first century religious leaders. It's a plea for you and I as well, a plea for us to know our God. So this morning as we look at this parable, what I want to do is note three very simple things about our God. Very simple but wonderful things. Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 20, we begin at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant. But that one also, they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. For just a second, put yourselves in the position of those hearing this for the first time. The people that Jesus would have been talking to were Jews. They were Israelites. They were God's chosen people. They would have heard this parable. They would have heard the metaphor, again, of the vine, the one that we talked about in our epistle lesson this morning. They would have heard the the metaphor of the vineyard, and they knew, they knew this represented them. It's represented everything that God had given them. Throughout Israel's history, this metaphor of a vineyard was used to symbolize all that God had provided. He had chosen them. He had given them an actual plot of land. He had protected them. He had given them special promises. Now Jesus told this parable in such a way and using such pictures so that their ears would have perked up so they would have known without a doubt he's talking about us. In Jesus' story, the vineyard owner, he makes a request. He makes a request that also the Israelites would have been very familiar with. The owner gets some of the fruit. 
in those days when owners rented out their, farmer, uh, their land to farmers, to tenants, they would give them a, a large percentage of the crops. First of all, 10% went to God because Israel gave back 10% of what they had to God. But then the next percentage, they knew. They knew it went to the owner. So this wasn't a ridiculous request. And yet look how they reacted. The first guy comes and they beat him up a little bit. No fruit. A second guy comes and they beat him up and note the progression because this time it says they also treated him shamefully. They made him do embarrassing things. And then a third guy comes. A third guy shows up and they wound this one. They injure him and they toss him out. Israel would have known. Israel would have known this too Jesus is talking about us. You see, throughout their time, they had been sent messengers. They had been sent prophets like Isaiah, whom we read. People to come to them and say, stop living the way you are. Stop abusing the land. Just give some back to God. Stop running after other gods. Stop marrying off to other nations. Live your life like God's chosen people. God's not asking a hard thing of you. He's just trying to win you back. He's just trying to woo you with his love. He's not trying to be demanding. Just give your first fruits to him. And what did the Israel do to those messengers? Treated it like trash. We read on. Jesus said this in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. Think about that. Would you have done it? If you were the owner of the vineyard, would you have looked at servant one, two, and three come home and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. Of course not. Any smart person would know that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Why would I send my son in such a dangerous position? And yet here in this parable, Jesus highlights one of the most wonderful, one of the most mysterious, one of the most scandalous things about our God. Christians, if you leave here today and you walk away with just one, one thing, know this. Our God is a patient God. Our God is patient to the point where it pains him. Our God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he sends over and over and over again a patient appeal to people who are just arrogant. People who thought they could use the vineyard for their own pleasure, for their own glory. He sends his son. And then we see these unworthy tenants once more given a chance, given yet another time to do it, do something else that is rather scandalous. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They murdered God's own son. They murdered the owner's son. The owner's final grand overture of grace is met with a premeditated, planned out, plot to kill 
And to a lot of people, this doesn't make sense. I'll be honest with you, when I read this parable over again, getting ready for this sermon, it struck me as just bizarre. I mean, what did they honestly think? Did these guys really think they would get away with this? The thinking goes like this. They saw servant one, two, and three come, and they dismissed him. And then when they saw the son come, they thought, if the old man's not coming, it means he's dead. If he's sending his son, it means this is the son's vineyard. And so if we kill the son, if we get rid of the son, well then we can own the land. Then we can be squatters. We can press for rights to own this and make it ours. That was their thinking. And so as the son comes, they discuss it. They talk it over. What should we do? Let's keep this. Let's make it ours. And they kill him. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does it mean? Jesus continues in verse 18. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the gospel of our Lord. The point The moral of the story that Jesus told was don't kill me. Don't do what you're about to do. And yet it ends like this. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest him immediately, to kill him immediately. Jesus wraps up the parable by spelling out very clearly what would happen to those tenants, those tenant farmers who now had become tenant terrorists. He says very clearly, here's what's going to happen. Justice will be served. The Father's going to come. They will die. End of story. But then here comes my favorite part of the parable. Jesus looked at the crowd that was gathered around him. Jews there at the temple to offer sacrifice. The teachers of the law. And he said, he asked them, what does this very famous parable, or excuse me, psalm mean? He quoted Psalm 118. He said, what does it mean? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Tell me, what does it mean? And there was silence. No one spoke up. No one said a word. Oh sure, some may have been able to guess what he meant. Most people probably knew what he was implying, that he, Jesus, was the cornerstone. He was the one that held it all together. He was the one they rejected, but he was the one God chose to bring the whole building together. They couldn't answer him. And so Jesus says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus says, let me translate this parable for you. He says, do not reject me. Do not make the decision to reject me. If you do, it'll come at your own fate. What the old Jewish saying 
is, it's true, Jesus says. He said, should the stone fall on the jar, woe to the jar. Should the jar fall on the stone, woe to the jar. Either way, woe to the jar. Jesus says, listen, you cannot, you cannot imagine that these tenants are going to get away with this. It just doesn't add up. You cannot stand in the vineyard of the Lord, claim all of God's blessings, the title as son and daughter of God. The gifts of forgiveness, the gift of hope, the gift of peace, house and home, friend and family. You cannot claim all of these things from God and yet reject the source of all those blessings. The math, it just doesn't add up. You cannot abuse the message. Kill the son, excuse me, and expect benefit and blessing from the Lord. Jesus says it just doesn't add up. And yet that equation, that math problem has been a problem for people ever since. At the height of the Lutheran Reformation, the German artist Lucas Cranach painted this portrait that hangs in the chapel at Wittenberg. It's called the Vineyard of the Lord. And the painting is large. It spans the entire, entire front part of the altar of the church. And it's divided into two halves. On the left side, let's zoom in a little bit. On the left side, there are priests, there are monks, and there are regular people, regular Christians working in the vineyard of the Lord, working hard to destroy it. There's people pulling out vines, picking and choosing which parts of God's word that they enjoy, which they like. There's people taking rocks and dumping them into the well, creating a barrier between them and he who is the wellspring of the water of life. Jesus. And get this, in the bottom left of the picture, there is the sun. There is the sun coming to the vineyard to collect fruit, to show me that you are living in step with what my Father's will is. And look, it's the people who are in the vineyard who have their hands opened. They're expecting to get something from the sun. That's the left side. Compare it to the right side. The right side of the vineyard shows the vine branch is flourishing. It shows people cultivating the soil, taking the water from the well, the well that is Jesus Christ, and spreading it out, pouring it everywhere. And if you're looking, some of you might recognize the gentleman in the bottom right of this picture. It's Martin Luther. It's the man by whose name sake we call our church. So which side of the painting are you on? Are you on the left side or the right? Before we get a little self-righteous and, and really proud of our right religion and our, and our name Lutheran, it might be helpful that we reflect on which kind of attitudes move someone from the right to the left side of this. If you are someone who picks and chooses verses or sections of scripture that you like to support your brand of Christianity, if you're someone who's pretty proud that you know a few passages and yet you use them to single out and treat a few select people as less than you, if you're someone that uses passages in such a way where you use it to defend your gossip, you use it to defend your lives, if you're someone who does that, you're someone who's ripping out the very words of God. You're ripping apart the vine. And what are you other than a terror tenant standing in the vineyard of God, claiming all of the blessings 
and yet not following his word. If you take a look at God's gifts of forgiveness, of grace, and yet you manipulate them and abuse them in such a way where you say, yeah, I'm going to parent in, in love and the gospel and encouragement unless my kids do something dumb. If you say, yeah, I know God's grace, I know what God's word says, I know what forgiveness has to offer, and yet you refuse to say a hard truth to someone who you know who is not living in step with God's word, what else are you doing than taking rocks and dumping them down the well of the word? What else are you doing than taking rocks and creating a barrier between yourself and your God, or even worse, perhaps, between someone else and your God? What else are you doing than abusing the message or even the messengers of God? Now I'll confess, there is a tenant terrorist inside of my heart. I want everything that Christianity has to offer. I want to be called the son of God. I want to be called a man after God's own heart. I want to experience the community of saints. I want to know the forgiveness that Christ has to offer. I want to know what it means to have peace in this life and hope for eternal life. And yet as I stand here in the vineyard of God and I listen to God's word as he, as he makes not hard demands to show fruits, to live a life of repentance, I say, nah. To live a life where I, I literally put my needs and my wants below that of my neighbors or even the people in my own house, the people in my own church, I say, nah. There's a tenant terrorist inside of my heart. I know this. I know this, that it listens to the lie that all of God's blessings, all of God's gifts are somehow mine to enjoy without giving back to my God. How about you? You see, one of the most wonderful truths that can be told is that we have a God who is patient. We have a God who is loving. But make no mistake about it, we have a God who is not lenient. We have a God who is not lenient when it comes to our sins. We have a God who is not tolerant of our lifestyles that do not honor and give glory to him. We have a God who is patient, yes, but do not mistake his kindness for weakness because he does not tolerate. He is not lenient when it comes to wrong. And because of that, he made a decision. He made a very, very difficult decision. He made a hard decision. He made the decision. And that was to send his son. He sent his son. And though we have a God who is patient, and, a, and because we have a God who is not lenient, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be obedient. Obedient for you. You want to know just how obedient Jesus was for you? Take a listen to this passage from Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was that son. Jesus was that son who was sent by his father to go to the vineyard, even though he knew every single person who went before him suffered bruises, who suffered blows. And yet he went and he was not scared to death, but he was obedient to death. 
and for it he suffered death on a cross. Jesus asked the people who are listening to this parable, he says, what does it mean? What does it mean that you have a father who over and over and over again sent people to you to bring you a message of love? It means you have a God who is patient. What does it mean that your God would not allow the life you are living to go on? It means you have a God who is not lenient when it comes to sin. What does it mean that his son listened? His son listened knowing full well, knowing beyond what's reasonable that he should go to that vineyard to save the people who are inside. Well, it means that God has a son and that you have a savior is obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, as Philippians goes on, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name that at every, na- at every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under it, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus asked the people, what does this mean? What does this parable mean? It means you have a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son whom he loves into this world in spite of the world. It means that you have a God, you have a savior who loved you in spite of you. And now, and now we have a God who is patient and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls us to do something that's not difficult. He calls us to live lives that give glory to him. He calls us to give lives or to live lives that produce sweet fruit in keeping with all of the blessings that we have and get to experience inside of his vineyard. This past week, a friend, a pastor friend, he told me a story that he read of a gentleman who lived in England. The gentleman lives out in the country and he walks an hour each and every day, there and back, one hour, to do a Bible class in a, in a rough and tumble mining town. One time he got back from this walk and his father, a hardened atheist, said to him, I wouldn't walk that way if you paid me $2,000. And his son said, neither would I. His point is simple. He was doing something for God. He was working in the vineyard of God, not expecting to get, but doing something because of all that he has been given. And what he has been given, you have been given. It's a son. It's a savior who is obedient, obedient even to death on a cross. Christians, and now our God calls us to be messengers ourselves, to be people who go to people who are inside of the vineyard living wrong and people who are outside of the vineyard and tell them the hard message that they might have to hear, that Jesus loves them and he wants you to live fruitfully. He wants you to live where you can drink pure waters of his word. Christians, for that reason, this church will tenaciously, intentionally, and decidedly continue to carry out the Great Commission, to carry the water of life to those who need to hear it most. Because there are men and women in your life, and you know them, who need to drink from that well. There are people who aren't far away in Europe or Asia or Africa, but they're people that you know now. And because of that, I promise that as your pastor, I will not stop preaching hard things, both the law and good things, the gospel. I promise you that as your pastor, as your friend, and your fellow Christian, I will not stop 
encouraging each and every one of you to take your faith face to face with the people that you know. And I will not stop encouraging it until each and every one of us, men and women, introverts and extroverts, young people and old people, go and get about that work of working in the vineyard of our Lord. Because you know, you know that the message that God has given us gives life. It gives life and it gives love of a God who is obedient, a God who is not tolerant, and a Savior who is obedient, obedient even to the point of death, so that you wouldn't have to. Amen.